0: Thanks for being here today. Uh, I'm excited about the, our new mini-series we kick off today entitled Hope for the Holidays as we take a look at the way that the birth of Christ really brings hope for us. I want to thank you for all those who complimented on me on my wardrobe choice today. Uh, it almost didn't make it past my wardrobe consultant, and so... Uh <laughs> If you ever had that feeling in high school where you're trying to get ready and get out the house before your parents saw what you were wearing, I had that exact same feeling this morning. Uh, and uh, my wife came in, and she said, you're not really wearing that to church, are you? I go, I'm totally wearing that to church. And she goes, bad idea. And so, um, anyways, uh, thanks for encouraging your pastor today, even if you didn't really mean it. So, um, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Second Samuel this morning if you would. Second Samuel, last Sunday was an awesome Sunday. If you missed out on that, you just really missed out. We had uh, four folks get baptized. I think we got a photo of uh, our baptisms from last week. Yeah, Don, Gina, uh, Sam, and Matt got baptized uh, last Sunday over at Alamona Beach Park. So congratulations uh, to you guys for that. It was an awesome day. The uh, average Baptist church last year in America baptized two people. That's shameful, first of all. But I I say that not to toot our own horn, but to say that what God's doing here through our church is something special, it's unique, and and it's not every church in America where people are being saved, baptized, added to the church, growing in their faith, being discipled intentionally. Uh, And so we're part of something special, and we need to make sure that we continue to praise God uh, for what He's doing through our church. we titled today's message, Hope in God's Promises. And today's going to be a little bit different type of a message than what you're normally used to hear here at Huikala. Normally what we do is we take a single passage of Scripture, maybe uh, just a verse or a couple of verses. We take a look at the surrounding context of those verses and who it was written to, why it was written, uh, the meaning behind the text, what the individual words actually mean to us, and how we apply that to our life. That's the best way to preach the Bible. It's referred to as expositional Bible preaching. And Anytime you look for somebody preaching the Bible, you want them to tell you what the Bible says. Today's gonna be a little bit different because we're taking a look at kind of the whole Bible. If you were to take just the whole Bible and zoom out as far as you can, that's kind of the way we're gonna look at it today. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a kind of a high-level overview. The first part of today's message is going to be very teachy in nature. I'm just going to teach you things about the Bible, uh, the way that it's structured, the things that God said, the people that he dealt with, and then at the end, we're going to have the application part of it. And so uh, if you don't doze off on me on the first half of it, because it's really good, Uh, but take really good notes, jot some thoughts down as you go along today. If you have the Hui Kala app, uh, you can open up the Hui Kala app, click on Hope for the Holidays, today's message, and then you can actually take notes, click the button it says Fill in Notes. Uh, it'll open up a web browser where you can take notes that way, uh, write down some thoughts as we go through it, just take a lot of really good notes. Uh, I'm excited about today's uh, message. We're taking a look at the promises of God's word and how we have hope uh, that's found there. And to do that, we're going to take a look at the covenants that God has with his people. And so I'm really excited about that. Uh, had this opportunity this past week to talk with uh, John Stoker. John uh, leads our music, uh, but John's also a, a deacon in our church. Uh, John's a Christian school uh, Bible teacher as well. And you talk about somebody that knows their Bible, John knows it. And so uh, we get to talk about the covenants this past week. And so if you've ever got questions uh, about the Bible and, and things like that, always ask your pastor. But man, if you want to know more about covenants and uh, things like covenant theology, which our church is not a covenant theology church, but it, but that you should know what that means and why that's important, uh, talk to John about that. He he. I, I said, John, i got a couple questions for you. And he lit up like a Christmas tree. And he was just so, like, oh, so excited. And we began to talk for, uh, I told him I need to talk to him for about 15 minutes. And it went way over 15 minutes. But it was awesome. And so, John, thanks for being a good friend and a, a good, solid Bible dude. One of the things that disappointed me about John, he didn't have the Hui Kala app on his phone. Can you believe that? I was kind of disappointed in that. He said, uh, he said I was looking for the PDF for the notes, and I finally had to, down- I finally had to download the Hui Kala app. What is it? <laughs> That should have been the first thing that you did, John. But uh, anyways, we love John, uh, and so despite his shortcomings, uh, but um, I say all that to say this, a lot of the stuff we're going to take a look at today is not original to me. I've got it from books that I've read or uh, conversations that I've had with other godly men that I love and trust, and so, uh, but it's important to understand the covenants that God gives or promises to his people, uh, and sometimes his people can be defined differently, and we'll take a look at that unpack that here today. So 2 Samuel chapter uh, 7, where we find ourselves this morning, the text we're going to read from, is actually one of the covenants that's kind of in the middle of all this. It's called the Davidic covenant, where God makes a promise to David. And this promise is really important because the promise that God makes to David would later be fulfilled in the birth of Christ. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to be at. We're going to start in uh, verse number 7. God says, "In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, why build ye not me a house of cedar? In other words, God says, I've walked with you for a long time. Nobody's ever actually built me a house. Now, therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hopes. I took thee from the sheep coat, from the following of my sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and made thee a great name, like unto the name of great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall my children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time, and as since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make with thee a house." So God's saying, I've taken really good care of you. Your enemies have risen up against you. I've taken them down. I've given you a place where you can dwell that you can call your home. I've taken really, really good care of you. Verse number 12, uh, depending on what type of Bible you have, not, not the version of the Bible, but the type of Bible, if it's a study Bible or an annotated Bible or things along those lines. In the Bible that you have, you might have next to this verse like a star, an outlined star in your Bible. Does anybody have that in their Bible? One... Yeah, I had a handful of folks. You see a star with an outline beside it. That means this is a prophecy, verse number 12, that is that has not yet been fulfilled at the moment that it was made. So God's making a promise that he would later fulfill. That's what that empty star means. And so as you read through your Bible and you see stuff like that jump out at you, that's what that means because verse 12 is a prophecy that God makes. And when thy days shall be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up a seat after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. So verse number 12, God is promising to David, I'm going to create a king that's going to come from your family tree whose kingdom will never end. God here to David is making a prophecy of the birth of Christ. And so we take something as simple as uh, the Christmas story and we realize uh, that God became a man and was born in a, a manger stall became one of us so that he could grow up to bear the sins of mankind. That's a a cool story. But the idea is that God has set this in motion thousands of years prior to it actually taking place. Verse number 13, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now, verse 14, some people have looked at that and they go, well, he can't be talking about Jesus because he's talking about if he sins, God will correct him. And so Jesus never sinned, so he must not be talking about God there. But if you remember, Jesus didn't commit iniquity. He didn't commit sin himself, but the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. That Jesus Christ, while he did not commit iniquity, he became sin for us. And what happened, the Bible says that God said he would chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. So Christ was beaten and crucified because he took upon himself our sin. So here we see a prophecy not only of the birth of Christ, but also of the, the death of Christ and him bearing our sins. But mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, but whom I put away before thee in thine house. And thy kingdom shall be established forever. Thy throne shall be established forever. These verses 8 through 16 are what we refer to as the Davidic covenant. We're going to unpack that in just a little bit and talk about exactly what that means for us as Bible-believing Christians. But as we take a look at this series that we're taking a look at, right now, uh, I believe in the world that we live in, there's a lot of doom and gloom talk. There's a lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt. Uh, There's even a, a tinge of sadness in our world right now based on everything that's going on. And I think one of the things that the world could use right now during this time of year is hope. And we as Bible-believing Christians have the source of hope readily available at our fingertips. At any point, we can run to the hope that's found in the Lord, and we can share it with other people. And so uh, over the next three weeks, we're just going to be taking a look at, at parts of the Bible and parts of the Christmas story that bring us hope. Now, when we talk about hope, it's important that we define terms. We're not talking about hope like a wish that we have. Like, I hope uh, I get something good for lunch today. Uh, I hope the pizza delivery guy's not running behind. I hope I get off work early on Friday afternoon. That's synonymous to I wish this would be so. The word hope, when used in a biblical context, means a confident expectation in God based on his character and the promises of his word. That's what we mean when we're talking about hope. When I'm talking about like, God said it, it's just going to happen and it's going to be true. That's the type of hope that we're talking about. We're not talking about wishful thinking. We're saying, this is what I know to be true because God has promised it. This is what I know to be true because this is who God is. This is his character. This is what his word says. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the second that I take my last breath here on planet earth, I have the hope of eternal life. Now, I don't, that's different from saying, I hope I go to heaven. Hoping that I go to heaven means that I, I may or may not make it. It's up to question. When I say, I have hope, now my faith is in God and the promises of his word that when I die, I'm going to heaven because he who hath the son hath life, the Bible says. So that's the hope that I have. So at the end of all this, this life that we live, I have hope because I know who God is and I know what he's promised to me. You can have hope tomorrow morning when you wake up and go to work or hope tomorrow morning when you uh, wake up and walk down the street because you know what God's word says and you know that you can trust him. That's what we're talking about when it comes to hope. When we're taking a look at the story of Christmas, the incarnation of Christ was really the beginning of the unfolding of thousands of years of promises Originally, when I was going to take a look at at today's message, I was going to take a look at just the different promises that God had given to his people of the the way the Messiah child would be born. Uh, The Bible tells us that the the child would be born in Bethlehem, though though Bethlehem was a small city. and There wasn't a lot to it, that the, the child would be born in Bethlehem, and so that was one of the promises that was given. The Bible also gives a promise that the child would be born of a virgin. That's another promise, and originally, I was going to take a look at the different promises that were made regarding Christ's birth. And then share with those because that's really a big deal. But as you, again, take those verses and you zoom out and take a look at the totality of the Bible, you realize that from Genesis to Revelation is the story of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ's story is not relegated to a, a manger in Bethlehem, but what took place in Genesis points us forward to the manger in Bethlehem. And the manger in Bethlehem is the catalyst that kicks off the end of the world that we find in the book of Revelation. Really, from the beginning to the end, the Bible is just the story of Jesus. And so as we take a look at this uh, passage today... We're really just going to kind of zoom out and take a look at the whole Bible and see how God has dealt with his people throughout time and the promises that God's made to his people and how we can find hope in the promises, the agreements, and the covenants that God makes with his people. When we talk about the word covenant, the word covenant refers to the act of God and freely establishing a mutually binding relationship with humankind. Through the covenant, God bestows blessings on humans in unconditional and both conditional terms. So first of all, it's important to understand this, that a covenant is an agreement between two people. And a covenant's different than a contract because a contract has conditions. If you don't meet the conditions, the contract is broken. Whereas a covenant relationship is different in the fact that there's conditions. But if one party fails in their end of the condition, the other party has to agree to that to keep their end. So, for example, we lease this property from our landlord. Uh, We have a contract agreement with our landlord. It says this. If you pay X amount of dollars a month, you get to use the property. When you fail to pay X amount of dollars a month, you fail and give up your right to the property. That's a contract agreement. We stop paying rent, our landlord kicks us out. That's the agreement that we make. Our landlord kicks us out, we don't have to pay rent anymore. That's part of the agreement. That's a contract. Now, if we were in a covenant relationship with our landlord then we could say, we no longer want to pay rent. And our landlord could say, it's okay for you to stay there as long as you like because we're in a covenant relationship. I'd encourage you to pay rent, but if you can't, no problem. Uh, I'll keep up my end of the bargain. And you say, wow, what a good deal that would be. Not really, because in a covenant relationship, it's two ways. Our landlord could say, you need to continue to pay your rent every month, but you're not allowed to use the property anymore. And we say, okay, we're gonna continue to pay our rent. Well, that doesn't work very well for us on our end. So when you enter into a covenant relationship with somebody, you got to have a high level of trust and confidence in the other party because you've agreed to keep your part even though they might not keep their part, right? Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. And we have a high level of trust and expectation that God is always going to keep his end of the bargain, always. He never fails. The problem is many times we fail in our end of the covenant agreement that we have with God. Now that's important. But here's the, the second part that's even more important for married couples is this. Marriage is a covenant relationship. The, the day that my wife and I got married, I committed to love her, serve her until death do us part. Good times, bad times, indifferent. Well, what happens if she doesn't keep her end of the bargain? I still keep mine. What if she decides that she doesn't want to love me and serve me anymore and take care of me or anything like that? Great. I get to keep my end of the bargain because marriage is a covenant relationship. The problem in our society today is people view marriage as a contract. Well, he doesn't make me happy, so I'm going to go find somebody that will. She doesn't do what she used to do for me, so I'll find somebody that will. And we say they didn't keep their end of the bargain, so I'm not going to keep mine. God enters into a covenant relationship with us, and there are certain conditions, uh, but the, the way that the, the contract, or I'm sorry, the covenant works is the fact that conditionally God blesses humans as they obey in the terms of the covenant. God says, You do what I ask you to do. I'm going to bless you uh, like you've never seen before. Unconditionally, God chooses to bestow blessings on humans regardless of their obedience or disobedience in terms of the covenant. So God says, Conditionally, meet the terms of the agreement. I'm going to bless you. But if you don't keep your end of the bargain, God says, I'm still going to be faithful. I'm still gonna keep up my end of the agreement. I'm still gonna continue to bless you even though you failed. And this is one of the things that is so comforting for us as Bible-believing Christians is because I know that when I am unfaithful, God is always faithful. And so that's what a covenant relationship looks like with God. One author put it this way, a covenant relationship is not merely a mutual acquaintance, but it's a commitment to responsibility and action And he says a key word in Scripture to describe that commitment is faithfulness acted out in abiding friendship. And I love that the idea that that this relationship with God is not two strangers coming together like, I'm not sure if I can trust you or not. It's a friendship partnership where we both agree to enter into a relationship with God And he chooses to love us unconditionally and we choose to love him unconditionally as well. And it's more of a friendship. One author uh, put it this way that the idea of a covenant is to bring shalom or peace and wholeness to a relationship. That's the idea of a covenant, is that these two people who maybe once were at odds or had competing interests or opposite interests are now coming together in a peaceful, harmonious, whole relationship together. That's the idea of a covenant. We see really four major covenants that we find in the Bible that are are really important to us but when we take a look at Scripture, some people have identified the, one of the what we would probably call an agreement as a covenant, which should not necessarily fit the, the God doesn't call it a covenant, put it that way. Uh, first of all, I'll call it the Adamic agreement. Some people would call it the Adamic covenant. Uh, we, we don't find the word covenant used to describe the agreement that man had with uh, God. But God said, "Do this: Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, take charge of everything and run the show. That's what God gave the man. The second condition of the agreement that God had, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and life, which is found in the middle of the garden. That's it. Live your life, do your thing, enjoy everything that I have, but don't eat of the tree. Man chose to disobey God, and God says the day that you eat of that tree you're going to die and the devil came along and says you're not really going to die it's not that big of a deal God just doesn't want you to be like him do your own thing god's a liar so again one of the crafty tricks of the devil is to get you to cast doubt on god's word or god's faithfulness and that's what the devil's done from the very very beginning and so here we see that, that man chose to disobey God, and the Bible says in that day their eyes were open. Sometimes people have said, well, you know, God wasn't telling them the whole truth because God says the day that you eat of that tree, you'll die. And they didn't die right away, they died spiritually right away. The communion, fellowship, closeness that they had with God immediately was torn. And there was now distance between them and God. They had broken God's commandment. They had broken fellowship with God. Whereas God used to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day and talk with them. The same way you and I would have a conversation, God now was distance. With this came God's curse because Adam had backed out on his end of the agreement. God says from here forward, man, you will eat by the sweat of your brow. Everything you have in life, you will have to work for. And if you ever eat anything, it's going to require work on your part to get it done. Woman, you'll have pain in childbirth, and you'll also be subservient to a man because you caused this man to sin. That was the curse that God put on mankind. And because of this, your life has a short life expectancy. You're not going to live forever. You're going to have close communion, and you're going to be spiritually dead until we can make things right. But then, in Genesis chapter 3, turn your Bible over to Genesis chapter 3, if you will, we'll see that, again, as God is always faithful despite our unfaithfulness, Genesis chapter three shows us just how faithful God is. Genesis chapter three, verse number 14, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon the belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, again, if you have a study Bible that has a star beside that, because this is a prophecy that God's making, and I will put enmity and make enemies between you, the devil, and the woman. And between thy seed, the spawn of the devil, and the seed of the woman, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So again, in this case here, he's saying the seed of this woman is going to come, and you guys are going to have... A, war between the two of you. And this seed of the woman will bruise your head, but you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, this is important because God is foretelling in prophecy how he plans to defeat Satan, evil, sin, death, the grave. By the seed of a woman, Now, this is not a science class, but reproductively speaking, a woman does not have a seed. She has an egg, which the man has the seed. So this seed of a woman would be a child that was born, not of a human father, born to a virgin woman, you could say. In this case here, this was a prophecy in Genesis chapter three, verse number 15, that A child would be born of a virgin who would defeat the devil, make way for redemption, and redeem mankind. This was set up for you and I in Genesis chapter 3. This is beautiful. Because we see christmas trees and we hear christmas music and we are all excited about it and you should be but you need to understand that the christmas season is our time to celebrate the fact that god in genesis chapter 3 saw our sinful condition and our lack of hope and he chose to send his son to die on the cross to pay for your sins and we can say joy to the world the lord is come and and some people who want to say things like well we're Christians, but we don't celebrate Christmas because Jesus wasn't really born on December 25th and things like that. Hey, look, Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th. Most Bible scholars think he was probably born in the springtime sometime. Look, here's the thing. And people said, oh, you know, Christmas started with a pagan holiday and you're just celebrating paganism and, and materialism and things like that. Hey, look, I get it. Here's what I, the way I see it. If the entire world will stop for one day and claim it to be Christ must, and celebrate the birth of Jesus. Me as a Bible-believing Christian, I'm gonna jump on that. You wanna give him more than one year a day? I'll take that too. But if you're gonna set aside a day for that, I'm gonna use that to celebrate the birth of my savior. If you're gonna allow me to, to walk to Ala Moana Shopping Center and walk through the center court and hear things like, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, I'm going to totally celebrate that. Please don't stop me. Um, Now again, you want to charge up things that you can't afford on on your your credit card. You want to give your kids lavish things because you didn't have it as a kid. All those things are unhealthy in any context. But look, we as Bible-believing Christians, Christmas and Easter should be two of the biggest holidays on our calendar in a given year because Christ came, Christ died and rose again for the sins of mankind. It's a big deal for us because God has been setting this up since the Garden of Eden. God made a way for you to be part of his family when Adam and Eve were still standing naked in the garden. That's how big this is. So that's the Adamic agreement. The first covenant that we find in the Bible, as God calls it a covenant, is what we refer to as the Noahic covenant. God came to Noah and he says, Noah, build an ark. And this ark and everyone who comes inside of this ark, this big boat that you're gonna make, will be safe from the coming destruction. I'm gonna flood the entire world. Everyone will be destroyed because of their wickedness and sinfulness, but anyone who's willing to get in your boat can be saved. I want you to take two of every animal, put it in there so that we can replenish the earth again after this flood is over, but everybody's gonna die unless they're in the boat. Now, if you study out the Old Testament, and I highly recommend at some point you do a study of the types, T-Y-P-E-S, types of Christ in the Old Testament. These are pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The ark is a type of Jesus Christ. Anyone who comes to the ark is saved from the coming destruction and judgment for sin. By the same token, anyone who is in Christ is saved from coming destruction and judgment of sin. All those who are outside of the ark were judged and destroyed. All those that are outside of Christ will be judged and destroyed. All those inside will be safe. And so the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. So God's first covenant with mankind, his first agreement that he had with Noah, Noah build an ark, get inside and you'll be safe, was a picture of God's love for us and a coming Messiah one day for us. And then God also made a second part of his covenant. And he says, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood again. And to prove that, I'm gonna put a rainbow in the sky so that every time you remember that, you remember God is faithful. I remember as a kid, it was an anomaly if you ever saw a rainbow. You saw one like every five or 10 years, maybe, if you're lucky. I'm thankful that we live in a place where we can constantly be reminded of God's faithfulness. And every time you see a rainbow, I don't want you to be like, oh, there's a rainbow. I want you to be like, man, God is faithful. Every time you see a rainbow, because this is a picture of a promise that God made with mankind. God went into an agreement with Noah and says, Noah, I'm gonna take care of you and your family and anybody else who will trust me. And to remind you how faithful I am, I'm gonna give you the rainbow. Now, it's important to note that God didn't say he would never destroy the world again. He just said he wouldn't do it by a flood. God's wrath is coming for the world that we live in, and one day this is all going to burn, and only those that are in Christ will be safe. And so, the Noah covenant is really a picture of God's salvation to us. The next uh, covenant that we see in scripture is the Abrahamic covenant. I would say this is the big daddy covenant, if I were going to say, because everything else is kind of the umbrella that falls under the Abrahamic covenant. So if you think about the covenants that we're gonna talk about from here on out, the Abrahamic covenant is the big umbrella and all the other ones kind of fall underneath this. God took Abraham and he told him, I'm gonna give you three things. First thing I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you land. Everywhere you go, everywhere your footsteps will be yours. Keep walking, you'll keep getting more land. There might be people there, I'm gonna wipe them out. I'm gonna give you that land that they have. If you go into battle, I promise you that you're going to win. Just keep walking, and whatever you claim is yours to have for as long as you want it. First promise God gives. This is why for us as Bible-believing Christians, we want America to be friends with Israel because Israel is God's chosen people. And God's covenant that he made with Abraham didn't have an expiration date on it. It's not like, oh, that, that was back then. That was the Old Testament. No, God made a promise to Abraham that he would build a nation out of him and they would always be God's people. And the first thing that God promised them was land. I think this is why it was a big deal for me that our current president moved the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem because that is saying this is God's land that God chose. It was a big deal. This is why we, as Bible believing Christians, don't believe that Israel should be forced to give up part of the Gaza Strip because just to make peace with Palestine. That was God's land that he promised to Abraham. We don't get to say who gets it and who doesn't. God's already spoken. And so we, as Bible believing Christians, will always be on the side of Israel because Israel are God's people. Now, just because someone is an ethnic Jew or they were, uh, their genealogy dates back to, to Hebrew or a Hebrew national, does that mean that they're automatically going to heaven? No. The only way that people go to heaven is faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, quick aside here, there are Jews who believe that Christ is Messiah. They're typically referred to as Messianic Jews. So if you ever hear that term, Messianic Jews, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, They might follow some of the feasts and might follow some of the cultural traditions and things like that, but they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only way to heaven. And these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. True Orthodox Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. Uh, Just like John tells us he came to his own and his own received him not. Uh, They still reject Christ as Messiah. And while they have a favored position in the world as far as God's protection is concerned, they still need to accept Christ as Savior or they will in the end meet destruction and death and wrath as well. God also promised that he would give Abraham a seed. I'm going to give you a nation that will have no end. I'm going to give you people that will be like more than the stars of the sky, more than you can count is the nation I'm going to bring from your body, you and Sarah. And so I'm going to build from you a great nation. I'm going to give you a seed. And God promised that this nation that he would build up Abraham would last forever. This is why, as we've seen throughout history, the small country that Israel is, could have easily been steamrolled by any major uh, empire throughout world history, could have easily been exterminated by anyone, attempted to be exterminated by Nazi Germany in World War II. You could kill six million Jews, seven million Jews, but you're not gonna stop the nation of Israel because those are God's people. Simple as that. God promised he was gonna give Abraham land, he was gonna give him a seed. And for you and I, the first two things might not be really practical you. If you're not an uh, uh, ethnic Jew, Uh, If you've never lived in Israel, those two things might not really hold a lot of bearing to you. The third part of the Abrahamic covenant is where the meat and potatoes are for Gentiles, for Christians. That's the blessing. God promised Abraham, through you, the entire world, throughout all of human history, will be blessed. And he was talking of a coming Messiah. Abraham, from your family tree will come the son of God who will take away the sins of the world. Through you will come a Savior. Through you will come God in the flesh. This is a big deal. And so we see really the Abrahamic covenant, the the agreement, this mutual friendship that God entered into with Abraham to bring wholeness to Abraham's life, to bring peace and shalom to the world. Everything flows from this Abrahamic covenant the second covenant that we see. Uh, first of all, before we get in too deep into the covenants, it's important to see how God worked with the, his Old Testament covenants. First of all, God works typically through a word, the word, or a prophet. God would either appear to someone and speak the way that he talked to, to Moses on Mount Sinai, he would appear to Abraham and had a conversation with him, the way that you and I would have a conversation. Or God would send a prophet like he did when he spoke to David and opened up the Davidic covenant by sending a prophet to speak on his behalf. But God spoke. He worked through a a prophet to wage war. God basically eliminated every single enemy force around so that the nation of Israel could rise up. God continues to this day To allow Israel, again, the size that it is, population size, the size of its military, very small, but the might that they have, the allies that they have, very great because God has always protected his people. And God does this to make a covenant, an agreement, a relationship with his people, to constitute that people as his people. And then God establishes a temple presence among them because he will live among them. So we see God had made the Abrahamic covenant and God had a relationship with Abraham where he talked like you and I would talk. God made a covenant with Moses and God would talk with Moses the way that you and I would have an audible conversation and talk back and forth. But the children of Israel that Moses led, they didn't have a one-on-one relationship with God. They needed access to God through a priest system and through a temple system. And so God's spirit didn't dwell with every single person individually. God's spirit would typically dwell in a building or a place. And so as they traveled the wilderness, God created a tabernacle. It was a tent. Think of it as a mobile temple where God's spirit would come down, dwell in this temple, and then it would go back up. They'd pack up the tent, move it on to the next place, sit the tent down. God's spirit come down, dwell. They pack up the tent, gone. When God's speaking with David in part of the Davidic covenant, says, I'm going to build a house, but... Tells David later, you can't build the house, Solomon will build the house, Solomon builds the temple, they have a huge party, God's spirit comes and dwells in Jerusalem with God's people in the temple. That's how God worked through his covenant. His spirit would always be with his people because he had a covenant with him. So the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing. Next, the Mosaic covenant. Sometimes referred to as the Sinai covenant where uh, Moses actually talked with God You can find this in Exodus chapter 19 through 24, five chapters where Moses sits and talks with God. And God gives Moses first and foremost the law. Exodus chapter 15, we find what we sometimes refer to as the Ten Commandments, kind of the foundational, God's moral law that he establishes is kind of a foundation to build on from there. And then God begins to unfold the law. Now, God's covenant with the children of Israel through the Mosaic Covenant it was a lot more terms and conditions than say the Abrahamic covenant. I'll give you land, I'll give you seed, I'll give you a blessing. God's covenant with his people through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, it was heavy. If you've ever read the uh, end user license agreement for any software that you've ever installed that you're supposed to scroll down and click accept, if you actually read that, which I know you do, if you actually read that before you accepted it, that's cake compared to God's terms and conditions with the Mosaic covenant. Because he unfolds it all throughout the book of Exodus. Then he gives you the book of Leviticus, heavy law book. Here's the terms and conditions of my covenant. And then, in case you didn't read Leviticus, he gives you Deuteronomy. And the word Deuteronomy literally means second law giving. And so here it is a second time, God's law, again with some additional terms and conditions with that as well. That's what God gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel. Unless you think that's like some big burden, like, oh, great. What kind of covenant is that? God gives you a big, huge rule book to follow? No, no, no. God says, I give you this law because I will be your God and you will be my people. This agreement that we're going into is a loving, caring relationship where I'm going to take care of you wherever you go. I'm going to give you whatever you need. I'm going to make sure that you never have a need that goes unmet. And all you have to do is be my people So God says, I'll be your God, Israel, you can be my people. That's the Mosaic covenant. So we see that begins to begin this system of access to God, but through a priest. Access to God through the temple. Access to God, forgiveness of sins through sacrifices. And then we begin a sacrificial system where on the Day of Atonement, people can have all their sins forgiven by uh, going to the temple and presenting an offering that one day out of the year that your sins are forgiven by taking an animal, slitting its throat, pouring out the blood over the altar, covering the sins of the people symbolically, and now the sins of the people can be forgiven. That's what we got through the law, what Moses and the children of Israel got through the law. The uh, fourth covenant that we see in the Bible, the Davidic covenant, which we just saw in Second Samuel chapter 7. God tells David, I'm gonna give you a lot of different stuff. I'm gonna give you a name. I'm gonna give you a place. I'm gonna create a system of eternal peace and justice. I'm gonna create an enduring kingdom that has no end on this earth. I'm gonna create an everlasting kingdom that's gonna last for all eternity. In addition to that, I'm going to adopt you as my own and I'm gonna create a system of a family, no longer a religious structure with priests and kings, but now we're gonna create a family where I'm the father, my son is the son, and then you are all my sons and daughters and you're a brotherhood to my son. That says, I'm going to set that up through David. Now, again, if we're looking back at this, we're seeing that the Mosaic covenant of the law was God saying, I'm establishing in Abraham a seed. Now God's saying through David, I'm going to create a king. That's the part of the blessing that carries on. Through David, the next covenant... The first few covenants might not have mean a whole lot to you. You might say, well, never thought about the Davidic covenant, never thought about the Abrahamic covenant, or the Sinaitic covenant, or the agreement that God had with Adam. Didn't think about that a lot. This this next covenant is the covenant that every single person needs to make sure that you've entered into with God, and that's called the new covenant. In the new covenant, God says this, this offering system that we had in the Old Testament, it's not necessary anymore. We're going to create a new way of giving an offering for sin, and it's going to be through Jesus Christ. And it's made once and for all. Jesus says, some of you might not know this, this might blow your mind. I remember the first time I heard it, it blew my mind. Jesus at the Last Supper says to his apostles, when he gives them the cup, he says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. As often as you drink it, I want you to remember me. And that word New Testament, we might think of, well, that's where we get the New Testament, right? The word Testament is used interchangeably in the Bible with the word Covenant. And so Jesus says, as he gives them symbolically his blood, he says, this is a new covenant. This is a new relationship. This is a new agreement that we're going to enter into from here forward. And so if you think of the Bible divided up into the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's literally the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's how your Bible split up. Some of you had just exploded, right? That was awesome, right? I remember the first time I was like, what? So again, the word testament and covenant in the Bible can be used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. It's God's agreement that he makes with his people. And so in this case here, before the the Jews had to go through the priest, the priest would make offerings for them. When when you sinned, you would have to make a personal offering to God, but you couldn't make it yourself. A priest had to do it for you. If you wanted to pray to God, you couldn't pray to God directly. You had to go through a priest to pray on your behalf. But now through the new covenant, Jesus Christ becomes our high priest. The book of Hebrews, oh man, if you ever get a chance to read through the book of Hebrews, read through it from a perspective of a Jew. I used to think the, the book of Leviticus was so hard to read through and I promise you it is. Uh, I sometimes refer to the book of Leviticus as the widow maker in the one year Bible program, right? People read Genesis, oh, it's good. Exodus, what a great story. And you get to uh, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. It's just like, ooh, what is this? Um, but if you read the book of Leviticus together with the book of Hebrews, you'll see how the book of Leviticus is really just pointing towards who Jesus is. You know, we have the, we have the luxury of reading the Bible backwards and being able to see that, like, oh, Leviticus, when it's talking about the role of the priest, it's just talking about Jesus, Oh, the rules that God had for the kings, that's just talking about who Jesus is. Oh, the prophets and what they had to do, that's just pointing us forward to who Jesus is. And the book of Hebrews begins to talk about that from a Jewish perspective. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 26 says this, for such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Jesus Christ came to us not like a regular priest, you see, the regular priests, before they could go into the temple, they had to cleanse themselves spiritually. They had to repent of every single sin under the sun that they knew of and make sure that they were 100% right between them and God. Then, before they walked into the first curtain of the temple, they had to completely and totally disrobe, clean themselves from top to bottom physically And then they could put on the garments that they would use to actually go into the next room of the temple. And then they'd go through another ceremonial cleaning process before they went in, because the idea is this. You're getting ready to go to where God's spirit dwells. Please don't go in there dirty. You need to make sure that you are totally, completely clean, physically and spiritually. But now we have a high priest who is separate from sinners. He's already clean. He doesn't need to go through a ceremonial cleansing. He's already spotless and without blemish. Why? Because he is not only the priest who would make a sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. So for such a high priest came to us who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people. Think about that. Jesus didn't have to make a a sacrifice for his own sins and then make a sacrifice for everybody else's. No, no, he needed no sacrifice. But here's what Hebrews 7 verse 27 says. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Jesus doesn't have to come back to continue to make sacrifices. He made a sacrifice once and for all. That's why as Jesus hung up on the cross, he cried out the three beautiful words, it is finished. No longer will there be a daily sacrifice. No longer will there be a, a day of atonement. No longer we have to come to, this, to the temple. No longer we have to round up the animals and, and slit their throats and bleed them out. The sacrifice for sin has been made once and for all. This is the new covenant. This is the new agreement that God is making with His people. And you say, "What does this have to do with Christmas?" Everything. Everything. God became a man in the form of a baby so that he could come and die and pay for our sins and make a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of mankind so that he could be our high priest so that now I have access to the Father, not through a religious figure, not through a religious structure, but I can go to the Father directly through the Son who is my high priest. That's the new covenant. God now has a direct heart relationship with mankind because of Jesus Christ. God has placed in every single believer, the Holy Spirit of God who resides in every, every believer. And now God has not a different relationship with mankind, not a standoffish relationship, but now God has a direct heart-to-heart connection with every child that's his. That's part of the new covenant. Now God has not sent prophets to speak to us God doesn't speak to us directly, but here's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number three, that God has now written his word not on tablets of stone, but God has written his word directly on the hearts of every believer. So now we're not waiting around to hear what the prophet has to say, Now we're not waiting for the priest to speak on behalf of God. Now we have God's word directly to us. First of all, through his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, through the written, complete, inerrant, infallible word of God we have. And all of this connects directly to our heart because God's already written his word on our heart. That when we hear the word of God, it's like, yes, that's what I need. Yes, that's what I wanted to hear because God's already put his word on our heart. That's part of the new covenant. That's part of a new agreement that God has. Hey, if you weren't a Jew before, you were kind of sidelined through this whole covenant thing. God's made an agreement with these other people over here that you have no part of whatsoever. But God is now saying, hey, anyone who would put their faith in my son can be a part of this new covenant, this new agreement that I have. I've opened up my family not just to a specific ethnic group, but now to the world that whosoever will may come. Now God works through his new covenant. God works by his spirit. God works through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He does this now to wage war against and defeat his foes who are now no longer countries who oppose his rule. They are systems and the world that oppose his rule. Now God's foes are no longer the uh, enemies around Israel. Now God's enemies are the world, the flesh, the devil, and God, by his spirit, by his incarnate word, wages war against his foes. Why did he do that? To establish a covenant with his people? And this covenant establishes these people as God's people and God as their God. And This last one, number seven, gets me. And God establishes a temple among his people because he'll reside among them. See, do you want to take a guess at where the temple of God is today in the new covenant? Anybody know? Right here. This is the temple. What? Know you not that your temples are, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? You're bought with a price for you're not your own. No longer, did you know this? The temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built, it's gone. You couldn't go there if you wanted to. I you know it's there, a mosque. Think about that. If you really want to trace this back, why is a mosque there? Because Abraham didn't really believe God's covenant. I don't have time for that today, but you should think about that. But the temple in, in Jerusalem has gone. What do we do? Well, it'll, it'll be back one day because the Bible says that Jesus Christ will set up on a throne in the temple, and it'll be there one day. That's fine. I'm not worried that it's not there right now. You know why? Because God's spirit no longer is confined to a building. God, through his new covenant, says... My spirit will be with my people, and my people are the temple. This building that we're in, it's special because God has allowed us to meet here, and God's given it to us, and God's pulled off a ton of miracles to make it happen for you to be seated in this room this morning. It's a big deal. But this room itself, look around. It's it's cinder blocks. It's a warehouse. Nothing special about this building, but inside this building is the temple of God in massive force because it's in every single one of us. That's part of the New Covenant. We don't have to go to a temple to pray. We don't have to go to a temple to make sacrifice. We don't have to go through a priest to pray. The new covenant says everything you have is right here, right here, and right there, right at your disposal. That's the new covenant. Oh, that's so good. Now, that was a really good introduction to today's message. I promise I'll get you to lunch, okay? Here's seven ways that the covenants give us hope. Okay, because I told you get hope from God's promises. Here's seven ways that that gives us hope. First of all, when we fail, God is always faithful, always. When you blow it, God is still going to keep his end of the bargain. Again, Abraham didn't believe God was going to create a seed out of him. Him and Abraham, him and Sarah were past childbearing years. She was barren, couldn't have a child. He said, "We got to figure this out." Sarah, Sarah says, "Hey, have sex with my uh, my maid." He had sex with her handmaid, had a child named Ishmael. Ishmael's lineage would always be at war with God's people. And later, the prophet Muhammad would say that the Muslim people trace back their lineage to father Abraham and his son Ishmael. So in the Middle East, all the drama that takes place between Muslims, Jews, and Christians a hundred percent of that can be traced back to a lack of faith in the Abrahamic covenant on Abraham's part. Like crazy, like today we're still struggling because Abraham was a knucklehead. But hold up, God's still faithful. Abraham didn't believe God. Abraham stumbled, he messed up, but God was always faithful, and that's the story through every single one of these covenants. God told Noah, Noah. Uh, I'm going to save you. And Noah did. He trusted God. What did Noah do afterwards? He got drunk. And his children had inappropriate sexual relationships. It's a mess. But God remained faithful. God says, mm, you didn't keep up your end of the bargain the way that I thought that you should, but I'm going to keep doing my part. You take the, the Mosaic covenant. God says, follow my r- rules. Let me be your God. I'll be your people. Right? Really easy. <laughs> Look, they just got let out of Egypt. Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he got the Ten Commandments, he came back down. What are they doing? They built a golden calf, they're worshiping the golden calf, and they said, this is our God that brought us out of Egypt, right here, this cow. We just kind of threw all of our jewelry in the fire, and this cow came up, and just this is the God that brought us out. Look, Moses has been gone for a short while, and he's already turned to idolatry. But what did God say? I'm going to keep being faithful, I'm going to continue to keep up my end of the agreement, We think of the Davidic covenant, God says, hey, David, I'm gonna do something special through you and your reign will never end. David made a lot of poor choices in his life and he didn't set his children up for success after him. The kingdom itself and Israel ended up falling apart, splitting into two kingdoms, and both those kingdoms eventually went away. But God didn't forget his promise. God made a promise that his king would rule forever and Jesus Christ is still king and one day will be earthly king in the millennial kingdom. It's a big deal. We take a look at the new covenant. God says, hey, I'm gonna give you my son. I'm gonna forgive your transgressions. Just follow me. I'll be your God. You can be my people now. And you and I are now are beneficiaries of even the Abrahamic covenant where God promised to send a blessing. But when we fail, what happens? God says, I know you failed, but I'm gonna continue to do my part. You see, it always follows a predictable progression every single time. First of all, man sins, Secondly, God judges that sin. And thirdly, God provides mercy and grace to cover that sin and move on. Every single time, this is what happens throughout all of the Bible, throughout my life and yours. Every single time. When I'm sharing my faith with people and inviting them to put their faith in Christ, they say, well, I'm afraid if I follow after Jesus, I might mess up. Oh, you will, I guarantee you that. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of When? And it's probably gonna be quicker than you think. But when we sin, God always judges sin, and then he forgives it. But hold up for a second. This progression that God does every time, man sin, God judges sin, and God provides mercy and grace. That middle part there where God judges sin, if you're a part of the new covenant, your sin has already been judged. It was judged on the cross when Jesus Christ was put to death. That part has already been taken care of. So when really when it comes to God restoring broken covenants that we've broken on our end, you know what happens? Man sins, God provides mercy and grace to fix a broken relationship. That's how it works. Because the judgment's already taken place because my sin was put to death once and for all. There's a lot of hope there, folks. Next. God's timelines rarely match ours. <laughs> Friend, if you're going through something this week, you want it to be over as quick as possible. You know, hey God, could you fix this drama that we got going on in our house by like Wednesday? That would be awesome. Hey God, could you change my teenager's heart by tomorrow? That would be great. Could you get my wife to love me like she used to love me when we first got married by the end of the week? That would be awesome. God's timelines very rarely match ours. God, could you provide me a husband that would propose by Valentine's Day? All the single ladies said, Amen. God's timelines don't always line up with ours. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, a seed, and a blessing. He says, good. And he looks at his watch and goes, Sarah, we got no seed. I think I'm going to try something else because God doesn't know what he's doing. Wait, hold up. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And I imagine Abraham going like, well, yeah, when's that going to happen? Oh, Abraham, it's going to start, and once it starts, it's never going to stop ever. I'm blessed today because of God's promise to Abraham thousands of years ago. I'm blessed by that this afternoon. So God's timelines don't always match up with ours. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 27, I'd fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I know God's going to work this out. I'm trusting in him. I'm just going to hang tight and watch it happen. I have hope that God's in control. I have a confident expectation and he knows everything that's going on and I trust him through this. Third, God's plans always exceed our expectations. Always. 100% of the time. We often set constraints and limits on what we think God can do, what we think God wants to do. And oftentimes we far undershoot what God wants to do. I remember when Angela and I got married, we didn't have any type of premarital counseling. We weren't attending church faithfully. We were not walking with Jesus when we got married. We just knew that we loved each other we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. And I really kind of proposed before we ever really talked about what marriage looked like for us. But both of us agreed, I just I just want to be married to you for the rest of my life and just be happy. Yeah, me too. Great. That was it. <laughs> kind of low expectations, I guess you could say. What God has done over the last two decades far exceeded anything that I thought would happen. I remember when we started Hui We Call a Baptist Church, I read a statistic um, and said the average church plant lasts for less than 36 months. And I thought, if we could just make it to three years, we're we'll like, make it, you know? That would be awesome. If we could just make it three years. The average church in America has 100 people or less. I thought if we could ever have a su- one Sunday where we had 100 people, we'd be like, wow, we're like average. That would be so awesome. If we could just be average. What God has done far exceeded any expectations that I had. When God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham didn't think, hey, man, you know, 3,000 years from now, people are still going to be talking about how awesome I am, how awesome God is. So God's plans always exceed our own expectations. I love what 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Next thing that I see from the covenant's Faith empowers God's promises. What I mean by that is this. Do you really believe God's word? I think everybody who's here today who would call themselves a Christian and say, do you believe God's word? You say, yes, amen. If you believe God's word, say amen, amen. Did you live like you really believed all of it last week? Or are there parts of it you struggled with? Faith says, I take God's is word, and I'm willing to take a step out because God says he's got my back. That's, that's real hope. That's real faith. God told Abraham, land, seed, blessing. Seed was the part that Abraham was really uh, serious about. And God gave him a son. His name was Isaac. And God tells Isaac, God tells Abraham, take Isaac up to the mountain and give him to me as a sacrifice. Now, I remember, I don't know at what point in my, my grown-up years that somebody told me the idea, you know, Isaac's this little boy. He's just gathering sticks. And, oh, I don't know really what's going on, Daddy. What's, what's going on? Isaac was a grown man by this point. If you read the, the account of it in the book of Genesis, Isaac was a grown man probably in his 20s or 30s at this point. He's not scratching his head trying to figure out what Daddy's doing. He knows we're going up to the top of this mountain. We're gathering sticks, and we got nothing to sacrifice. And Abraham said, I believe. And he got up there, and he laid his son down. And by that point, Isaac realizes what's going on. He grabs a knife. He's going to take his own son's life, and God says, stop. He says, there's a ram over there in the thicket. Bring that and sacrifice that instead. At that point, Abraham knew that God was good to his word. God, you promised me a seed, but you're getting ready to take the seed. I don't get it, but I trust you. And that faith that Abraham had allowed him to believe the promises of God. And now, from here on out, when God told Abraham, He's got this, God's like, Hey, look, you got this. I know that. And, and here's the thing maybe I'm reading it too much into the Bible. I don't think that I am. But if you read the account of, of the ram in the thicket, the Bible says that God provided Himself a ram. That words, God didn't provide a ram, he provided himself. And that could be read that God provided a ram for himself, or God was going to provide himself as a sacrifice. Hmm. Which that would point towards a foreshadowing that one day, God would be the sacrifice in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. There would be another time where a son was getting ready to be sacrificed by his father, but this time the father didn't stop. He allowed his son's life to be taken because Isaiah 53 said, said that it would bring about the salvation of many as a result. We can take a look at that story in Genesis and then it's more than just a cool Sunday school story. It's a story of my Savior and God's love. And when I begin to have faith in those promises, those promises take on a totally different meaning. But faith is, what the, is the power behind that in the lives of the Christian Next, remember, God always keeps his promises, always. And again, God might not keep his promises the way that you think he's going to or according to the terms that you set. And remember, you don't set the terms and conditions for your relationship with God, he does. I'm weary of so-called Christianity today that says we have the right to tell God what to do, that I just need to speak it, and God is required to do what I say. That could not be further from the truth. The only reason I have breath in my lungs for the next 60 seconds is because God allows it. I'm nobody to command anything. But when God promises something, He's going to bring it about to completion. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know that He will. I had to talk with so many parents who tried to raise their kids in church and raise them to do the right thing. And they said, my, my child's away from the Lord. I don't know how it's going to work out. And Well, the Bible says, train of a child when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Well, I know. Is he old yet? Well, he's not old, but he's older. It doesn't say older. It says when he's old. The story's not over yet. Hold well, they away from the Lord and they're breaking my heart. I get that. I get that. But the story's not over yet. Believe the promises of God. So again, when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. Titus 1, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Next. This, This one hits me hard. God's word is true, even when it doesn't feel like it. I don't know if, maybe it's just me. But are there ever times in life where you know what the Bible says. You know what is true, but then over here you got these feelings that don't match up, and you just don't know what to do with this. There's been times before where my wife's trying to—I I love her to death. She she's, uh, is—I tell people she's the pastor to the pastor. Uh, she's uh, she's a person that I get counsel from and encouragement from, and talk through stuff with. And she says, "Well, you know." you know that's not true because the Bible says X. And I'll come back, and I know it's a foolish statement. I've even said before, it's a foolish statement. I'll say, sweetheart, I know what the Bible says, but I also know how I feel. I know what the Bible says, but that this situation is different. When you say, I know what the Bible says, but, just stop yourself because anything you say after that is a foolish statement. Because the Bible's always true, always and so, this is going to help somebody today. I know it helps me. Whenever your feelings don't match up with the Bible, you need to change your feelings, okay? And so, well, how am I supposed to change my feelings? Think on the things that are true. Philippians 4.8 tells you how to change your mind and how to change your heart by focusing on the things that are real. I feel like God's forgotten me, but I know that he hasn't. I feel like God doesn't care about this, but I know that he does. This thing is not going to work out the way that I have it planned, but I know that God has his own plan. So I've got to reconcile how I feel to match the word of God. It's critical. I can imagine Abraham, God's promised his son. I don't know how many of you have had Difficulties in, in conceiving a child before. But it's a terrible process to go through where you're praying, you're begging, you're expecting. And it's just like, mm, not this month. Mm, not this month again. Oh, mate no, not this month. It's an agonizing process. And imagine Abraham not doing that month after month, but year after year. But at some point he had to say, I believe God's promises are true, and I'm just gonna, Trust in that. We've got to be willing to do the same. Final thought. <laughs> I love this. God's covenant to us, bringing us into his new covenant, is a sign of his love and a sign of his friendship. Again, remember, God's covenants are always a way to bring wholeness to a relationship, to bring peace, to bring shalom. And God didn't pick you because there was something special about you. God picked you because he wants to be your father, because he wants to be your friend. And I don't know about you, but like, if I was picking friends, I don't know that I would probably pick myself. (laughs) And I think the psalmist, when he says, who is man that you're mindful of him? Like, God, what would you cause to think about me? But God loves you. And he loves you so much that he's not willing to just pat you on the head and go, oh, that's cute, I love you. No, he's willing to give you his only son as a way to make a new agreement with you so that you can be made whole, so that you can be adopted into his family, so that you can be loved, encouraged, wanted, validated, protected, fought for as you're a child of God. That's big. That's big. And as I look through all these covenants and you look through from Genesis to Revelation, God's story that's still unfolding. I think to myself this. If God, when Adam and Eve were standing in that garden at this point, naked and ashamed. God at that point already said, okay, when Anthony comes, here's how I'm gonna save him. And God planned out everything in between to the types of clothes that the priests would wear in the temple, to the place where Christ would be born, to the place where Christ would be crucified, to the spear that would pierce his side, to the tomb that he would be laid in, to the way that he would come up the third day, to the people who would be there at the tomb, to those that would be standing on the hillside the day that he was resurrected, to the day that you and I heard the gospel for the very first time. God has had a plan in place for every single one of those things to make it happen every single time according to his plan. So, do you think he can handle this week coming up for you? I think so. If God could put all those moving parts and all those logistics that have to come together at the exact same time to bring you to the point where you are today, do you think he can handle whatever you're facing in the next seven to 14 days? I think he can. And I think he will. If you look at the promises of God's word, there's a lot of hope there. I don't know if, uh, I think I've got a copy of it here. Yeah. If you didn't get one of these the other day, grab one of these. These are free. They're in the back. I think our, we have, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 of these left. We handed them out last year. We gave them out a couple of weeks ago. God's, the Bible Promise Book is what it's called. And that's it. And you know what it's full of? The Bible, just organized um, by uh, topic. Uh, and they're just promises. Promises on jealousy. Promise on a long life, you know. With ancient wisdom. With the ancient is wisdom and the length of days and understanding with wisdom and strength he hath counsel and understanding. Yeah, that's a promise from God's word for you this week. And maybe you just need to grab a couple of these and meditate on them. Maybe you need to go through this book and highlight the ones that mean something to you. I just know that God's promises will bring hope. Most important thing in the world is if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved. There's never been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior. Please understand this. Not one single covenant that we talked about today applies to you at all. You are an enemy of God. He is not for you. He is against you. And the only hope that you have of becoming a child of God is putting your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, repenting of your sin, and guess what? You're adopted into the family of God, and now you get to partake in the new covenant, and it's going to be awesome. But there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, let today be that day. Know for sure that you're saved. But for those of us that are children of God this week, let's live like we serve the God of Abraham, who's always on time, who always keeps his promises, and he's always faithful. And he always provides a lot of hope. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.